Welcome to day 12 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at Genesis chapters 25 and 26, Matthew chapter 10 verses 1 through 33, and Proverbs chapter 1 verse 20 through 33. Okay, so Genesis chapter 25. Um, Abraham's life now is wrapping up. Um, here we learn of Keturah, his um, his concubine, um, and uh, th- this would be in addition to Hagar. Notice uh, concubines are referenced here, and the other um, children who were born to him. This encompasses uh, this promise that he would be the father of many nations in chapter 17. Uh, and again, I mentioned there that it is really through the gospel that this promise is uh, fulfilled. Remember the concept of fulfillment that I talked about a while back in the early chapters of Matthew, where um, you have, uh, you know, when, when God promises something or, or a pattern is set down or something like that in Scripture, and it happens multiple times, it... Uh, it is fulfilled in a sense, so this promise of many nations is in a sense fulfilled here, but it is at its fullest when seen in light of the gospel. That's a helpful concept for understanding the, uh, the idea of biblical fulfillment. So Abraham dies at 175 years. This is uh, going to be approximately, estimates vary, but approximately um, 1,990 B.C. That date is arrived at through various means I don't have time to go into here. Um, but I, I do want to note this. Note the 175 years. Remember back in chapter 5 when we saw the really long lives of all those people who lived before the flood, uh, who are sometimes referred to as the antediluvians, the before-the-flooders. <laughs> and... I noted that with the exception of one number in that entire chapter, all of them are either multiples of five or multiples of five plus plus seven. And I just want to note here that Abraham's age, his total age, 175 years, falls into that as well. And uh, indeed, we have seen that with a number of individuals since the flood. Uh, so Noah lives 350 years after the flood, and he lives a total of 950 years. Shem... Uh, is a hundred when he fathers Arpachshad, and uh, he lives five hundred years more. Arkabshad is thirty-five years when he fathers Shela. Eber, uh, after he fathers Peleg, is four hundred and thirty years. Peleg fathers Reu at thirty years. Uh, Serug uh, is thirty when he fathers Nahor, and Nahor is two hundred uh, years old when he dies. Terah is 70 years old when he fathers Abram, and he lives 205 years. Abram, note, is 75 years old when he departs Haran, and uh, is 100 years old when Isaac died, um, is, sorry, is born. Um, now, uh, there are certainly exceptions to this rule in these chapters, and I don't want to be taken as, as implying that these are not... Um, to be read as as factual or anything like that. It's just that there's there's enough to say that something suspicious is going on with some of the numbers here in Genesis. Uh, perhaps some are symbolic in some way, shape, or form. 
that, as I noted in chapter five, we just don't have any way of figuring out what their significance was. Like, we don't have enough data to to answer that question. Indeed, there are questions in the interpretation of the Bible where uh, we have to acknowledge that we just don't really understand the the answers to them. Uh, we but we can appreciate the questions. So I just want to note that um, when you have these very old ages, uh, we see this recapitulated in, in Isaac's life, 40 years old, 60 years old, things like that. Um, okay, um, so the sons of Abraham are all detailed here. The other sons, uh, note that also the 12 princes of Ishmael there uh, towards the end of the, the chapter. Uh, sorry, not the end of the chapter, the end of this section, uh, ending in verse 18. In verse 19, uh, we start learning a little bit about Isaac's life. Now, Isaac has taken Rebekah to be his wife, and that's a very good thing. And um, and so they, uh, they are married, and it's time for them to have children. But notice verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. Now, that does sound a lot like uh, Abraham, Abraham's life uh, with Sarah. And it's noteworthy, first of all, that this family who, as we have seen, uh, is, is linked to the covenant. And so, their offspring is especially important, even more so than they would have been in, in a normal family of that day, which which valued offspring very, very much. But here now you've got the covenant on top of that, so they're especially important. And here we have a second generation of barrenness, a struggle with fertility. Uh, what's interesting here, however, is that if you look at the dates, uh, or let's say the ages, so verse 20 tells us Isaac was 40 years old when he's married to Rebekah. And then if you look down to verse 26, when his children are born, he's 60 years old. So this is a 20-year thing, okay? Look at how quickly it's resolved in the text. It's resolved in the span of one verse. Verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, so there, you're, it's it's reversed, right? Like it, you're not even told about the barrenness first. He prayed, so it puts the prayer, uh, his turning to the Lord forward, um, and it, it's oh by the way because Rebecca was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebecca his wife conceived. Twenty years. Contrast this with Abraham, who is seventy five years old when he gets into the land, uh, apparently when he receives the promise of offspring, and is a hundred years old when it's fulfilled. So he's that's twenty five years. So very, you know, a little bit longer, but very comparable. Twenty years for Isaac, twenty five years for Abraham. Now with Abraham, we've been treated to many, many chapters of this ordeal, from all the way from chapter twelve up through chapter twenty one when Isaac is born. Here, however, in the span of one verse, it's resolved. So as to say, uh, like I noted with the birth of Isaac, what did you expect? The Lord keeps his promises. And so the, the lesson has been learned that when, when God uh, commits himself to doing something, and here committing to blessing this family's offspring, he will do it, even if it takes a long time. And and so the text doesn't even dwell on the ordeal of barrenness. It just tells us it really quickly, and I think that's very significant. 
Now, when uh, Rebecca is pregnant, she's pregnant, finds that she's pregnant with twins, and the twins are at odds with one another. This reflects Jacob and Esau's whole life, and indeed, this reflects their descendants' ongoing drama, the drama between uh, the sons of Israel and the sons of Edom. Uh, these are people who will dwell um, pretty much east of the Dead Sea, uh, so they're, they're Israel's neighbor, and uh, there are times at which they are kind of close, usually through some kind of subjugation, but they're usually giving each other a pretty hard time. Uh, note that the entire book of Obadiah, its entire one chapter, is is basically an indictment against Edom for uh, her cruelty to Israel in a time of need, uh, particularly the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, but we're getting ahead of ourselves there. What is important here is that the two, there's contention between the two, and the Lord appears to Rebekah and tells her, two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. Okay, so put this in the context of Genesis. The The big picture here is God is at work uh, planning to crush the head of the serpent through an offspring of the woman. This is apparently happening through Abraham's family. Um, and it is it is intimately uh, the, intimately connected with this idea of this covenant, this generational covenant. And so the big question we ask when we see multiple children here now in this family is who is going to be the one through whom the, the covenant is transmitted? Uh, it is Isaac, not Ishmael, and not any of the other sons of Abraham whom we learned about earlier in this chapter. So here the question, who's going to transmit the covenant? And it is the younger rather than the older, which I note throughout Genesis, we see this pattern going, uh, the, the, the younger over the older, um, chosen instead of, which is a reversal of what is called primogenitor, this, the privilege of a firstborn to inherit the lion's share, a double portion of, of the family inheritance, right? You're, if you're the firstborn, you're kind of the favored child in some sense, you're, you're the most prominent um, perhaps we might say first among equals, however you want to think of it. But here, note that God's way is to is to is to basically uh, scoff at that. Basically, say no, I'm actually going to choose the younger. And here, the younger is is chosen. And this uh, these and these brothers. So the firstborn comes out all red, and he is called Esau. And uh, the other one comes out uh, holding his brother's heel. And it's a little unclear if that's supposed to mean like his hand comes out of the womb and we see see him holding his brother's heel. Or if in, shortly after their birth, perhaps he's uh, grasping at his brother's heel. Uh, newborns like to, to grip things. But at any rate, this, uh, this, this gets him the name Yaakov, Jacob. Uh, Jacob is a very strange name in a certain respect. The, uh, the, the word for uh, heel in Hebrew is akov, and uh, the, putting the ya on the beginning of it is actually uh, turning it into a verb. So think of the word heel, and then the word, like, as literal, not heel as in stop, like you would say to a dog, but, but heel as in like literally your heel on your foot turn into a verb. He's a healer, <laughs> H-E-E-L-E-R. He's a, he's one who grabs at the heel, 
And so the image that you have early on in Jacob's life as kind of this foreshadowing is that he's he's attempting to grasp on to someone whom he perceives to be ahead of him. Now, that's not that clear yet in the birth, but it will become clear as the story of Jacob's life unfolds and it will become very significant for his characterization. In my opinion, Jacob is probably the most interesting character in Genesis. Not maybe, um, also I'd say very theologically significant. Um, but he's just got a lot of textures and a lot of interesting stuff happens. So I'm really looking forward to getting, going through that, um, in the coming days. And so the boys grow up and Esau becomes a skillful hunter, a man of the field. And Jacob is a quiet man dwelling in tents and, uh, they get, they, they garner, this garners them favor, different favor with different parents. So, um, Rebecca loves her son who who's a bit of a homebody, dwells in, in tents, but Isaac loves Esau. And this issue of favoritism <coughs> is going to come back to bite Isaac, and indeed it will come back to bite Jacob and his sons later on. Um, and it's the way that it is actually said in the Hebrew of the text uh, emphasizes how silly this is, how um, how how uh, ridiculous Isaac's love for Esau or his preference over Jacob is. So first off, note that here you have God's, God has already chosen before he's even born, think Romans 9, Paul goes into that, right? The younger, to be the heir of the covenant. Again, doesn't mean Esau is automatically going to hell, but he is clearly the one whom the Lord has chosen, through whom the covenant will be transmitted to future generations. And Isaac decides that he's actually going to play favorites with the other boy. And and the reason given in the Hebrew of, of verse 28 here is Kizayed Befiv. For there was game in his mouth. It's very, here, it, the, the ESV translates because he ate of his game, but literally because there was game in his mouth. Like, think about how, how just, uh, you know, Esau just puts puts meat in his father's mouth and so his father loves him. That's how silly this this favoritism is. Speaking of silly, es- that you then have this this scene where, where Jacob is in a tent and he's... He's cooking some lentil stew, and the stew is red. Remember, red is um, associated with Esau here. And um, he sees this this stew. He comes in hunting. He's super hungry, and and the the picture here is that Esau is kind of this acting like this savage brute um, who can barely speak, and Jacob is there, calm and collected. So Esau comes in, and again, the ESV translates it, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. The, the Hebrew reads, please let me gulp down the red, the red, right? Like, he can't even get the words out. He's just, he's just, oh, red, red, I, I want it. Um, and then, but notice how calm and, and, and collected Jacob is. Sell me your birthright now. Sell me your birthright. This double portion that the that the firstborn has, um, and Esau, just this this drama queen, right? I'm about to die. Of what use is my birthright to me? Like, are you really gonna die, Esau? You've been hunting all day. Okay, you're a little pooped, but 
You know, like he's so starving, he's so given to his stomach, his appetite, that he's willing to to give what is uh, of extreme value. Uh, and so Esau, Esau is this brute, and then Jacob again, swear to me now. And thus Esau's like, fine, here you go, here's my birthright. And thus he despised his birthright. So Jacob here has used his own kind of cunning to take advantage of his brutish brother, whom he has perceived to be in front of him, and is attempting to gain this blessing all by himself. And we can raise a little bit of a question here, um, that the emphasis in the trust of the Lord, how he's going to work things out, whether it was through the giving of, uh, of Isaac as a son, uh, to Abraham uh, for the finding of Rebekah as his wife, even even as as extreme as Genesis 22 with the almost sacrifice of Isaac, God has shown himself to be utterly trustworthy. And here is Jacob thinking he's got to do this shady stuff in order to get ahead of his brother when God already has said before he was even born to, uh, that, that the older will serve the younger. And that's how the story of Esau and Jacob begins. Uh, chapter 26 is the only chapter Isaac really gets to himself. Uh, remember, I mentioned yesterday that Isaac is portrayed as a very passive character. Uh, even here, his son's story is uh, told first, right? And then he's only given a chapter. This does not mean that Isaac is some terrible sinner or horrible person. It is just a matter of characterization here. Um, Isaac, of, of all the patriarchs in, the, in Genesis, is the most flat character. The least detail is given about him, um, but he is very significant. So in, in chapter 26, it begins with the covenant being extended to him, God extending, and then we see this type scene again. Remember the type scene of the, the wife-sister episode where uh, a patriarch is afraid and he tells um, everybody in the land that his wife is actually his sister, so he's left alone, and then things go bad. But uh, and and here you've got uh, a little bit of difference. Uh, note that he does; she doesn't actually. Rebecca doesn't actually get taken into Abimelech, and this is probably the same Abimelech as as his father dealt with. Although it's not uncommon for um, rulers to have these names, you know, Abimelech the first, the second. Uh, especially with a name like Abimelech, which means my father is king. So that might be a different Abimelech. We're not sure yet. Um, you can't be sure. Um, but at any rate, he sees, he doesn't take Rebecca into his harem, but he sees them together, quote unquote, laughing. Okay. Isaacing. Remember, that's what Isaac's name means. He laughs. And uh, so sees him being playful with Rebecca. Kind of, and it's unclear what it is, but probably playful in a way that um, it would be weird if you were doing with your sister, that kind of thing. And um, and Abimelech calls him, gives him the rebuke that as part of the type scene that, that's happening every single time. But and, and the idea here is that Abimelech has learned his lesson, right? Whereas Isaac watching his father learning this 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 shady move from his father has not. Um and uh, but Abimelech then um, uh, sees the the bless this incredible blessing that is accrued to Isaac, 
And in a way that's kind of reminiscent of Abraham and Lot, sends him away because his possessions have become so great. So Isaac, as wealthy as Abraham was, now has even more to for himself um, that the Lord has blessed him with. Um, there, uh, Isaac, uh, his, his herdsmen contend with some of, uh, Abimelech's herdsmen, particularly over wells. And so you have the naming of these wells, uh, Asek and then Sitna, uh, both meaning like contention and quarreling. Uh, and then finally finds a well in this land that he doesn't have to quarrel about. And so the, so it's, you know, he could kind of relax and spread out in the land. So he calls the final well, Rechovot. Um, which is um, broad or spacious or wide. Um, you have a, the, the, the uh, agreement, the covenant relationship between Abimelech and Abraham's family is then re-upped. But the end of this chapter ends by telling us how Esau, oh, 40 years old, there you have a multiple of five again, um, takes Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basimot, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. The Hittites here, un, again, unlike the Hittites later in the biblical narrative, are portrayed as uh, as natives of Canaan. Uh, and uh, remember how much Abraham was concerned that that would not happen in his family. Well, here is Esau now taking wives from the people of the land. Um, and and as you can see, that that upsets his parents. Okay, we'll catch up with chapter 27 tomorrow. Let's go and look at Proverbs chapter 1. So we've got another Proverbs day here, um, and we finish up chapter 1 today. So um, picking up in verse 20, uh, here we have the first uh, personification of wisdom, which we will see in these introductory chapters to Proverbs more and more. Wisdom portrayed as a woman calling out in the streets. This is uh, sometimes called lady wisdom. And um, so you're supposed to envision the the imagery, the figurativeness, right? Wisdom crying aloud in the street. She's in the markets. She's in the noisy street, right? The hustle and bustle, uh, people going about their business. She's at the entrance of the gates. There we have the gates again. Um, remember the significance of those where we're where the significant uh, people of the town gather and do their business. Wisdom wants to be heard. Uh, Stop your hustle and bustle and pay attention to what is wise. And she calls out to the simple ones. The simple in, in Proverbs is the one who is who can go either way, who has yet to be molded, who has yet to decide whether to follow wisdom or to follow uh, folly. And... Um, and of course, rebuking scoffers as well. Uh, another thing we t- we learn about wisdom here is that it is it comes often in the form of reproof. Um, you see that in verse twenty three, and you see it in verse twenty five. If you turn at my reproof, and then um, you will have calamity if if you ignore my reproof, if you ignore my counsel. Okay, and so. This is another interesting thing about wisdom. Wisdom often comes as a form of correction. We've done something unwise, and are we going to listen? Are we going to take a lesson from that? Are are we humble enough to listen to those who would reprove us, 
or are we hard-hearted and prideful? And one is a foolish response, one is a wise response, because the wise person knows I need wisdom at virtually any cost. I need to know how to live in this world that God created. And speaking of which, um, here also we see that the wisdom of Proverbs, um, on the one hand, it is a very earthy thing. It's something that is accrued throughout life. Um, it's... it's uh, um, it comes from many places. Uh, one might say through observation, through experience, and, and it's passed on. In fact, as I, as I noted a few days ago, um, in the book of Proverbs is notorious for having several sections that uh, mirror very closely some Egyptian wisdom that we have uh, preserved from ancient Egypt. So these are collections. And so one might say, well, where is God in all of this? And... Um, Correct, correct theology of Proverbs, though, note, notes the things like we see in verse 29. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Okay, um, And note how the chapter began in verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And so this thing that we need to get is not only... Uh, Although it is, it, it does have its source in many different places, its ultimate source is in God, because what you're doing is you're learning how to live wisely in the world that God has created. Okay, let's go to Matthew and uh, look at Matthew chapter 10. It ends in a weird place in the reading, verse uh, 31. Um, most Bibles kind of divide it at 33, um, but anyway... Chapter 10 begins with the calling of the 12 disciples um, and uh, the, the, the official list of them. Okay, so we might envision all 12 following him around before this, or it might also be that the 12, this is the first time they're noted to all be together. Um, when, we, when we read of uh, Jesus' disciples, we don't necessarily need to think of uh, all 12 there at all times. Um, but here the 12 are together and they are named and they are given authority that Jesus himself has shown been shown to have. The authority to heal, the authority to cast out demons. Um, and they are sent on a mission to the towns of the lost sheep of Israel, to the towns and villages. And their job is to do what Jesus has been doing, proclaim the kingdom of heaven. Uh, that it is at hand, that, that God's kingdom through his Messiah is now, um, is now invading our world and kind of terraforming our world into the kingdom of God. And, um, and, the, and this is going to be accompanied by these signs, by signs of healing, by signs of casting out demons and things like that. And so emphasis here is placed on those who accept you. If they don't accept you, then, then, you know, uh, brush the dust of their of their streets off your feet, and um, and and go somewhere else. They they've rejected you because they reject me, and um, it will be worse. Here we see this idea of judgment again. Um, on the day of judgment, it will be worse for them than it will be for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, I'll just note here that one that sometimes. Um, uh, we one wonders about the judgment of God. Is everyone going to be judged equally? Are all sins equally um, 
worthy of condemnation in God's eyes. And, and passages like this and other ones that I will note as we go through Scripture kind of refute that idea and suggest that, indeed, God is able to tell the difference between more severe sins and less severe sins. That is how Scripture talks about sin. That's not to say that we can always tell or that our impression of seriousness of sin is always God's impression, but passages like this, it will be more bearable on the day of Sodom and Gomorrah than it will for those who the towns who reject me, um, really sounds like there is a greater seriousness in rejecting Jesus than even what Sodom and Gomorrah did. Um, his disciples are commanded to be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. These are two things that disciples should strive for, that on the one hand, you want to be... Um, peaceful and innocent and, and and not guilty of any wrongdoing, but on the other hand, you want to be cunning and and crafty and 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 not dumb. You want to be streetwise. I think wise as serpents is a very interesting thing because um if you recall in Genesis chapter uh chapter three, I noted when we when we looked at that that the serpent there is described as crafty. And speaking of Proverbs uh, the crafty one, the one who is crafty, um, does appear in Proverbs, and it is a good uh, quality there. It means you're wise because you know how the world works and you act accordingly. Of course, in the hands of the serpent, that's a bad thing. But in the hands of the one who seeks the fear of the who who has the fear of the Lord, that's a good thing. And um, so we shouldn't just be complete idiots about our faith, right? This is. This is um, puts a, a lie to the notion that that Christians are to be this gullible bunch who just believe anything. No, you're to be wise as serpents, but also innocent as, as doves. Um, here also, um, there's it kind of um, turns to the future here. Uh, this idea that that there will be this uh, that that the apostles, the disciples who will one day be the apostles. Uh, will be called to do other things as well as those who who follow them. So, um, talks about being dragged before governors and kings for the sake of Jesus to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. That doesn't sound like this shorter mission that Jesus is sending them on now. Um, and talks about persecution. A brother will deliver brother to death, the father his child, children will rise up against parents, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Um, if you're just loved by everyone, you who follow Jesus, there might be some compromise that you were making with this world. The, it, this isn't saying make enemies unnecessarily, but um, there is a certain incompatibility between the values of the kingdom of God and the values of the world. And um, if the world, the world, um, a disciple, well, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. If, if um, the world has called Jesus the master of the house—if uh, uh, if the world has called Jesus, who is the master of the house, Beelzebul, which is a—in uh, the first century had become a term for Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? So if you follow me, this is what you can expect. But have no fear of them, um, because— um, Nothing that is done to you is going to remain a secret. God will will judge all the intentions. And so what I tell you in the dark, these things I tell you when I gather you around as my disciples, proclaim them on the housetop. Um, you, 
blessed is the one who teaches others. Blessed is the one who proclaims the kingdom of heaven. And don't fear people. Fear, rather, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Don't fear the one who could just kill the body. Now, this, by the way, I think is an important verse. I'm, ta- I'm talking about verse 29 here. When we co- try to comprehend the biblical concept, the fear of the Lord, which we've talked about today from Proverbs. Sometimes it is said that the fear of the Lord, all, all that is is respect. God doesn't want us to really be fearful of him. And while I kind of appreciate that, I wonder, I, I think that's a bit of an overstatement. Because you read a, a statement like this, fear him who can cast body and soul into hell, that sounds like more than respect, right? That there should be a um, a trembling before God. Um and like many other things in Scripture, that's not the only disposition that we should have towards God, right? We should view him as a gracious, loving Father who has given us confidence to stand in his presence through the blood of Jesus. But our God is also a consuming fire. And if you only think of him as this chummy um, chummy dad figure, um, you're not really... Uh, envisioning God in all the ways that the Bible teaches us to to think about him. Um, so, yeah. All right. Well, um, oh, I wanted to mention one more thing, actually. Um, note this notion in verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. This is a a tr- bit of a tricky uh, statement, and it's there's two ways to kind of think of this. One to think of this is that this is the broader mission of the church that Jesus is alluding to, and that um, G- he will return um, once all of the locales that have Jewish people in them are evangelized or told about Christ. That is one way to think about it, and uh, certainly I don't think it's crazy to take it that way. However, I want to flag this also, that in a few days, particularly when we look at chapter 24 in Matthew, uh, more than a few days, we go slowly through the New Testament, but we're going to look into the, the question of this idea of the coming of the Son of Man, and exactly what Jesus means by that. Um, and so, um, uh, this, and and... Uh, I'm not sure how much of a spoiler alert I want to give. I think we'll reference this verse again when we get there. I just want to note that um, there is another way to understand this in a way in which this is more limited to the mission of the disciples um, with Jesus on earth. Uh, but we will get there when we get to chapter 24. And indeed, this this concept of the coming of the Son of Man is very important. All right, that's it for today. Uh, Thanks again for joining me and look forward to being with you again tomorrow. Until then, keep reading scripture, walk with Christ, and have a good one. Take care. Okay, bye-bye.